Welcome to the Seashore Church Message of the Week. This message is designed to bring more of heaven into your world today. For more resources like this, or to learn more about our church, visit seashorechurch.com. All right, Genesis chapter 2. We're going to go to Genesis chapter 2. I want to talk to you about three questions. Three questions and two trees. If I were looking for a title of this message, that would be the title. I have a problem with preaching anything from the first three chapters of Genesis. Not because I have a theological problem, but all of my Bibles are missing the first three chapters of Genesis. This shows you how old my Bibles are. Because when my kids were little, they would always try to turn the page. But you know the Bible has really thin pages and they'd rip them out. So they... All three kids at different time accidentally ripped out the first three chapters of Genesis. So thank God for iPhones and iPads and Jessica who can manage to get these on the screen. Can you see it around there? There we go. I'm sure that helped tremendously. Genesis chapter 2. We're going to read a story about Adam and Eve when they were in the Garden of Eden. God asked them three very specific questions after some things kind of went down in the garden. So we're going to read this together, all right? Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east in Eden. Eden, the word means delight. God didn't just plant a garden like I plant, where I water it really good for three weeks and then forget and everything dies. He planted a delightful garden. It was perfect. It had perfect ripe red tomatoes all the time, the most beautiful mangoes. I'm making this up, but it was a delightful garden. God placed Adam and Eve in a place of delight. And there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of of the knowledge of good and evil. Another way of saying good and evil is it's a tree of the knowledge of blessing and calamity. Nice to know the difference between good and evil and a blessing and calamity. God placed two trees in the garden. He had all kinds of trees, but these were two trees that had names, two specific trees in the garden. Verse 15, Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden. What did he say? You are free to eat from any tree that eat that in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for where when you eat from it, you will surely die. Why do you think God told him not to eat from this one tree? Can I ask that question another way? Does it matter? We can have a big theological debate of why God didn't want him to eat from one tree. But does it matter why? How many parents do we have here? How many parents of two-year-olds do we have here? Why? 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 Because do they really need anything else? Why don't we eat from this tree? Because God said not to eat from this tree. That's good enough for me, usually. All right, let's move on. 
Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. Now, there's a side of this that I went, Good job, Eve. Because God said you must not eat from that tree. And what did the devil say? Did God say you really can't eat of any tree? Isn't that funny how the voice of the enemy doesn't always say the opposite of what God says. It's what God says, but with a little twist. Did God really say you have to live celibate all of your life? You're not married. Surely you could have sex before you're married. No, God didn't say that. He just said, wait until marriage. Did God really say? It's a common thing that the enemy wants to ask you. I did notice that Eve added a little twist to it, though. You must not eat it or touch it. Oh, I didn't. Maybe that just wasn't recorded in Genesis. I don't know. But at least she got this part right. Don't eat of it. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. That's what the serpent said to her. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. Wait a minute. When the woman saw, when did the woman see how pleasing it was to her eye? after the enemy drew her attention to it. She'd seen the tree before, but now she notices, oh, wait a minute. That actually does look pretty good. That actually does look appetizing. That looks like something I might want to have. Never had that thought before. But now all of a sudden, because the questioning of the enemy, she's looking at things that she didn't even notice before. Now she's starting to notice them a little bit. So she took it and she ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, question number one, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, second question, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, the woman, she doesn't have a name anymore, have you noticed that? The woman, you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, question number three, what is this you have done? And the woman said, the serpent, let's kick that can on down the street, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Would you pray with me this morning? Father, 
I pray this morning. Come Holy Spirit. Come afresh. Speak to us this morning. We want to meet with you. And I pray that my words, Father, would be your words. That we would hear your voice clearly in this season above every other noise that's out there. And that we would obey your voice and begin to bear the fruit of righteousness. In Jesus' name, amen. Where are you? You ever notice that God doesn't ask questions because He doesn't know the answer to them? He's omniscient, He's all-knowing. So when He asks you a question, it's not because He doesn't know and He's hoping you do. Right? Can you tell me how to form these rings on Saturn? I'm, I'm a little confused right here. He doesn't need our help. When He asks questions of us, He's wanting a response. He's eliciting a response. And He asks Adam and Eve, where are you? Can I suggest that this was not a geographical question? He knew where they were in the garden. He's not saying, where are you? I can't find you. He's asking them a question that needs a response. Because God was not confused as to where Adam was. Adam was confused about where Adam was. The reality is Adam was in a state of sin. Something completely unfamiliar to him. God created this delightful garden for him. Placed him in it for the purpose of being able to walk with him in the cool of the day like he was wanting to do. This was a place of communion, of relationship, of fellowship. If you want to have some really Christianese terms there, no more Christian term than fellowship. Let's have fellowship together. I like it. It's just, anyway. But God created this perfect environment so that he could just enjoy being with Adam, and Adam could enjoy being with him. Sin didn't belong in this place. But now that sin had entered, this was something that Adam was not familiar with. Where are you? It's a common question parents ask their kids. Where are you? Remember I said God doesn't ask a question that he doesn't already know the answer to? My kids, it took them a year to figure out there's this delightful little app called Find My iPhone. <laughs> that when I say, where are you, I'm not asking a question I don't already know the answer to. Luckily, my kids are truthful and they tell me exactly where they are at every point in time. They really are. They're great. I'm just saying sometimes God asks you questions because you don't know the answer. Sometimes you don't realize that you don't know because you think that you do know. You think, I know exactly where I'm at in life. I know exactly where my spiritual state is. I'm completely content and happy with where I am in God. I prayed a prayer 20 years ago, and I'm okay. I know that I'm a Christian. I'm good. And God says, but there's more. There's more than just taking up residence on the earth. We're meant to have dominion on the earth. 
You can't have dominion on the earth by just sitting in the garden. Because although God created Eden for for Adam to, to be with him, there was stuff outside of Eden. There's a whole world outside of Eden. That God's intention for Adam was to take dominion of that place. Because while the garden had order, outside the garden was disorder. And so he gave Adam dominion over everything outside of the garden. God controlled the dominion inside the garden. Adam was meant to take dominion over the things outside the garden. So there was meant to be a projection of God's presence, of God's kingdom in the garden into the rest of the world. It's why he had him name the animals. The animals came in and he's like, hey, Adam, whatever you call the animals, that's its name. Platypus. Really? Okay, platypus, here we go. Whatever he named it, that's what, why? Why didn't God name the animals? Isn't that his job? Because he wanted Adam to take dominion of everything that was outside the garden. We as a church are not meant to gather here and just enjoy the presence of God in order and unity. We are meant to do that. But the kingdom is meant to be a projection of heaven into the world outside the walls of this church. That's the intention for us. For God, for us, is to take His presence everywhere we go. Dave prophesied, signs, wonders, and miracles are not just reserved for Sunday at 10.45 a.m. at 819 Granby Street. Those signs, wonders, and miracles are meant to be taken outside the walls of the church. That when you lay hands on the sick, they're healed. That when you prophesy over people, it comes true. That's God's intention for us is to take what's in the garden outside of the garden. So how does the enemy keep that from happening? Bring sin into the place. What you have isn't worth exporting, Adam, because it's corrupted. And now that you've sinned, you may as well just stay here in your sin and in fact hide from the only one who has the ability to take away your sin. Because if the one who has the ability to cleanse you Seize this, you're dead. You heard what he said. You heard what he said. And now all you have is consequence. Because Adam had no concept of sin, but he also had no concept of grace and mercy and forgiveness. And so he hides. He not only hides, he plays the blame game. Adam and Eve both. They play the blame game. The problem with the blame game is there just are no winners. I'm married to the most beautiful woman, an amazing woman ever. But sometimes we can get into the blame game. Well, this happened because you, and this happened because you. There's no winners, trust me. The only way you win is to go, I'm so... I was less than right. (laughs) You know that God compared marriage and the relationship between a husband and a wife between Christ and the church. He said, I want you to love yourself as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to present her without spot, wrinkle, or blemish. Holy and 
blameless. Jesus is trying to present the church as blameless, and I'm meant to, pro- to uh, present her as blameless. How can she be blameless when I'm blaming? So when I blame her for something, even if she did it, I'm still working against the very purpose of Christ. She can't be blameless if I'm blaming her. That's a, that's a subreddit. Is that a thing? There's no winners in this blame game. But that's the path that Adam and Eve chose. They sinned. Sin brought shame. Sin took their authority away, gave it to the enemy, and now they're hiding from the only one who can cleanse them. But what if they hadn't played this game? What if they didn't do the, this blame game? I often think about this. Why did God come on that walk the next day? Did God know that they ate from the fruit? Of course they did. But He came walking in the cool of the day. He knew they sinned. He knew they were hiding. He knew that there was shame. He knew it all. He's God, right? So why not, at the moment that they bit the apple, just give them the heavenly boot out of Eden and send them away? Why not just immediately they died? And God went, well, let's try 2.0 and do it again. Why did He take this walk? What you're witnessing is the first altar call in the Bible. As He comes and He walks in the garden, Knowing they sinned, if you want to know the heart of a father, this is it. He knows they screwed up. I wish I could be a dad like this. That the first thing when I walk in the door, I just don't get on the kids for what they didn't do. Because I can do that. He comes walking in the garden. He says, Adam, where are you? Where are you? Imagine if he hadn't played the blame game. Imagine if Adam just went, you know what? You know that tree we weren't supposed to eat? I messed up. God, I did the very thing I wasn't supposed to do. And I'm sorry. Who knows what the response of the father would have been? I do. Because I've experienced the grace that comes when we're able to say that. This is an invitation from the Father back into intimacy. Because the Father wasn't the one hiding. The problem when sin comes in, it brings shame. And it makes us feel like God is the one hiding from us. Do you know that one of the most common prayers that David prayed in the Psalms? Lord, don't hide your face from me. Isn't that interesting? God doesn't hide his face from us. But yet, David having attacks from the enemy constantly on him, both spiritual and natural, there's moments when you go, God, please don't hide from me. Please don't hide from me. Please don't hide from me. I need to, I I don't just need to read about the stories about you. I need to see your face. I'm facing death. I'm facing losing my job. I've got to pay my mortgage this month. I've got to put food on my table. I need your face. Please don't hide your face from me. 
He's not the one hiding. Don't let fear, sin, shame creep into your heart and create this environment where we're the ones hiding from Him. God, you did this to me. I obeyed you. I heard you. I obeyed you. And now look what happened. All hell just broke loose over my life. And God's like, really? Yes, I heard you. I obeyed you. And all hell just broke loose. Well, thank God it no longer has a grip. At least hell's loose. It broke loose. It was holding you and it broke loose. That's a good thing. May not feel like it in the meantime, but when you let go of the enemy, when you stop believing his lies, it breaks loose and screams as it goes. You know, when the disciples would cast demons out, it said that they came out with shrieks. With many shrieks, many demons came out. Demons will shriek. Don't worry about it. Sounds terrible. Really bad. But it's just a sign that they're letting go of the thing that they no longer have ownership of anymore. So, where are you? Where are you? You know, Matthew chapter 5, verse 3. In the Beatitudes, Jesus said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in wallet, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. No. Blessed are the poor in health, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. No, blessed are the poor in spirit. What does it mean to have be poor in spirit? The best way of translating this term poor in spirit is a right view of yourself. In other words, you know, the Bible says don't think more highly of yourself than you ought to. When you think more highly of yourself than you ought to, you are not poor in spirit. God doesn't want you to be physically poor. He doesn't want you to have no money. Wow, that was a... He doesn't want you to have no money. How am I going to say that? He's not wanting you to be poor financially. He's not wanting you to have poor health. There's no holiness in those two things. He's wanting you to be poor in spirit. In other words, in view of a holy God, I can look at myself and go outside of His grace. I actually am nothing. And I have a right view of myself before God. That's what humility is. Humble yourself and God will raise you up. If I'm poor in spirit, it means I look at my own state outside of God and realize that I'm no better than Adam. That I'm no better than the worst sinner that's ever lived. Because sin is sin. God doesn't measure it. And so being poor in spirit is an act of humility that says, I need His grace and His forgiveness just so that I can live. And theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That means that when we repent, in other words, to change the way we think about ourselves, when we repent and we receive His forgiveness, we also receive His grace. And that is who the kingdom is reserved for. The kingdom is not reserved by those people who come in with their card that says, Apostle, Prophet, Evangelist, Clayton, who's won all these people to Jesus and prophesies and, and raises people from the dead. Here you go, God, here's what I do. God doesn't want my business card. He doesn't want my resume. He wants me. Me. He wants you. And the poor in spirit are who inherit 
the kingdom. It's a right view and understanding of our present condition. And it answers the question, where are you? In the noise of this world, God's asking, where are you? Yeah, I see the state of the world. By the way, the state of our world is no shock to God. Rather to you. And so we're going, God, have you seen this? You know what's happening over here? You gonna do anything about this? And he goes, Where are you? Because if you're poor in spirit, yeah, but if you're poor in spirit, the kingdom is yours. And what the world needs is not a better idea, is not a new political party, it needs the kingdom. And if you will humble yourself, and if you'll repent and forgive, repent, for I'm the one they should be asking forgiveness of. They're the ones that need to repent. Where are you? God never asked me, where are they? He asked, where are you? And if I want to see change in my world, it's not by just telling God to change this and change that. And I believe in the power of prayer. It starts with me answering the question the Lord's asking of me is, where are you? Hey, Clayton, I hear a lot of you talking about stuff, but have you actually prayed about it? Do you understand that when you pray, this is deep theology, are you ready for this? When you pray, things happen. When you don't pray, nothing happens. When I talk to Romy about something, it doesn't change anything. When I talk to God about something, it can change everything. But I want to tell everybody else everything else that's going wrong in the world. And I want to gather people who think like me. Where's God in that equation? I'm, a, I'm fine with gathering people to think like you, but have you actually prayed about it? Because He's the only one that can change stuff. I don't know why God waits for my prayer to change things, but boy, He does. So if I see somebody that needs physical healing, does God want to heal them? not a trick question. Does God want to heal them? Yes. Can God heal them? Yes. But He's waiting for my prayer, for me to invite the Holy Spirit to heal before He does. I, I can't tell you why, but God chooses to partner with us to bring the kingdom into the world. Just like Adam in the Garden of Eden, God chose Adam to take dominion outside of the Garden I don't get it either. Wouldn't have been my game plan. You have me draw up the business plan for how to bring heaven to earth. I definitely would not have chosen humans. Maybe dogs. They're pretty cool. Not humans. Definitely not cats. But I might have (laughs) chosen dogs. But he does. God wants to partner with us, not just do it for us. And prayer is the way that we partner with God. God's like, 
I just, I have this picture in my head. Rami will correct my theology if it's wrong. But I picture myself when I get up in the morning, God's like, what are we going to do? Like when we take a day off, it's been a while, but when we take a day off, we both get up and we're like, man, what do you want to do? I picture God like that. But you know what I do? I can get up in the morning. God's like, what do you want to do? And I'm like, hang on. You ever have a conversation with somebody and they're just finishing the text? I got a post. Hang on. I got to reply to 95 Facebook messages about religious exemptions. Hang on, God. He's like, what do you want to do? I was like, I don't don't want to do that to him. Okay, because I, I mean, I'm, I'm the only one that can change all that stuff, but I get it. Do the stuff you got to do. Where are you? What do you want to do today? This is me, isn't it, God? Yeah. Because if you think you have answers for people, what do you need me for? All of your wisdom and experience and research and all that stuff, that's great, but you understand you actually need me, right? And if you keep doing this without me, you're going to drain dry and you'll actually be damaging people by what you're trying to do to help people. Why don't you put down your phone, Clayton? I'm saying that because this is what he's speaking to me. And just spend the time in prayer. And watch what I do. And stop praying your personal opinions. Because you know another scripture in Matthew is, Blessed are the meek. You know what meek means? A refusal to live life based upon your own opinions. For any Greek scholars that are out there. So blessed are those who just refuse to live life based on their opinions. And blessed are those who humble themselves. So I don't want to pray my opinion to God. Jesus taught us to pray, not my will, but yours be done. So when I pray, there needs to be an exchange of wills. Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, going to face his death, said, Is there any other way? But nonetheless, not my will, but yours be done. I want to pray and have that exchange of wills. God, you know what I want. But I don't know what you want. So in my prayer time, would you change my thinking so that I can think like you? Because your thoughts are higher than my thoughts. Your ways are higher than my ways. But yet I can know your thoughts. And I can know your ways, but I understand, Father, that they are spiritually discerned, not naturally discerned. Would you fill me again with your spirit, the great exchange of my will for yours? Because I pray, I want to pray your perfect will into this world. Where are you? If you find yourself in the place of trying to figure everything out based upon the opinions of others and your own wise intellect, 
you're going to fall short. But Jesus said, my sheep know my voice. Tune in to his voice in this season. Answer the question, where are you? But answer it well. Where are you? That woman, I was going to spend time in prayer, but that woman gave me chores. <laughs> right? God, we got to fix this stuff. Yeah. But where are you? I think sometimes we can read questions like this in the Bible, but with the wrong tone. You ever have somebody that asks you a question and it can have two totally different tones? If it's 12.45 a.m. and I'm asking my kids where are they, it's not like, hey, what are you doing? It's where are you? I don't have to do that with my kids. I'm Your kids. I'll talk about your kids. <laughs> That's, that's the Miranda law of the preacher's kid. Whatever you do or say will be used as a preaching illustration at some point in time. <laughs> Where are you? That's not what I read when I hear this. But I read the heart of a father who's longing, who knows that his kid is in trouble, and is longing for him to repent and be cleansed. The heart of the father is not to punish. The heart of the father is to cleanse and clean up and redeem. If your child comes in with a skinned knee, you don't want to punish them for getting a skinned knee. You want to fix the skinned knee. The heart of a father walks in the garden, in the cool of the day of your garden, of your own heart, and says, where are you? Can I encourage you this week to respond to that voice and say, I'm here. And if there is sin, I'm not saying there is. But if there is, just go, God, I've messed up, and I confess this sin to you. I thank you for forgiving me of this sin and cleansing me of all unrighteousness. Now, what do you want to do today, God? If it's some unforgiveness in your heart, God, I'm telling you, I forgive, Lord. I forgive. I forgive. I forgive the ones who made the decision that put my my job in jeopardy. I forgive the ones... And go as deep as the Holy Spirit wants to go. I forgive myself. Whatever it is, wherever the Holy Spirit's going, don't assume that it's something right on the very surface. And when you do that, you're right back in the same relationship as if you had never sinned. When the Bible says He cleanses us from all unrighteousness, it means it's the same thing as if we had never sinned. Send. It's not like God's going to keep carrying you around and telling everybody, remember that time when you were this guy? <laughs> Screwed up again, but I'm going to walk with him anyway. He doesn't do that. Where are you? Would you pray with me? I got one third of the way through this message, so we'll have to finish this later. Thank you, Jesus. Just let him speak to you this morning. Would you let him ask you the question, where are you?
but hear the heartbeat of the Father who will wipe away every tear from your eye, who heals all of your disease, who loves you with an everlasting love. For some that have lost loved ones, you're asking God, where are they? Because you're not sure. I believe the Lord's saying, they're with me, where are you? He loves you. He loves you. He loves you. Would you humble yourself? Would you stop trying to figure it all out and just pray? Would you stop trying to convince everybody else and just pray? Because if you do, the kingdom is yours. And instead of taking to the world your anger and your venom, you're going to bring life. This world needs the order that God is doing in your heart right now this morning. As you're doing business with God, thank you, Jesus, that you're healing hearts this morning. You're healing hearts this morning. That as we forgive others, you forgive us. And we pray that we would hear from you as your sheep, that we would hear your voice. In Jesus' name, I pray for those facing job loss, income loss, that they would hear your voice this morning. We speak healing over those who are sick right now across our nation. Sick from COVID, sick from vaccines, sick from cancer, sick from diabetes, sick from allergies. Doesn't matter, God, you healed everybody of everything. And we speak your life and your healing over their bodies in Jesus' name. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Amen. Praise God. We're going to continue this. Uh, it probably is a couple of part series. I don't know if I'll do it next week, but I will finish the other two questions. Part of the problem with this garden is there was more than one voice. There's two voices in that garden. And we're going to teach you about those two voices and how to respond to each of them within the next couple of weeks. Thank you for joining us today. For more resources like this or to find information about our weekly services, visit seashorechurch.com.